Well, good morning, and as those offering baskets are being passed, I too want to uh, welcome you here to Four Oaks. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Scott, one of the pastors here. Our lead pastor, Paul, he is away for the weekend, and if you are a guest with us, we've started a new series recently called Foundations, which is where we're walking through the book of Genesis, and already we've covered a lot of, a lot of ground over the last four or five weeks uh, and in fact, one thing that we're going to go back to this Wednesday night, if you are interested, is we are having a symposium on creation and science. And so we, we covered the, the days of creation, and, and we want to jump in and, and dig into that a little bit more uh, this upcoming Wednesday night. Uh, and so the idea here is, is we want to just discern how do, we, how do we see creation in light of science, and how do we see science in light of creation? And so what, another cool thing about this is that all three congregations are coming together. So you'll hear from Pastor Paul, from Pastor Lance, and from Pastor Josh. And so it's just going to be a great chance. Bring all of your tough questions for them, and I'm just going to sit back and laugh as they try to answer them. Uh, no, uh, I, I'm going to support them every step of the way. But no, it's a great opportunity to, to just dig more into what the Bible has to say and how to see science as as complementary to creation uh, rather than in contradiction to it. And so it should be an awesome time. Um, one other thing, uh, last week, if you weren't here, Pastor Paul introduced this idea of being made in the image of God. And our kids, our younger two, actually took it in a little bit different direction at our lunch discussion. I'm not sure if you guys had this conversation with your kids, but uh, Josiah and Ruthann, and they were talking about not what it means to be made in the image of God, but whether they reflect the image of the stakes or the pierces. So stakes my family, pierces uh, Julia's family. And so Ruthann was the first to state her case, and she's like, listen, I get a suntan at the beach. Uh, I'm tall. I'm sort of muscular. I think she even used the word buff, if I'm not mistaken. Um, she said, I've got straight hair. I've, uh, excuse me, I've got wavy hair. Uh, I've got blue eyes, and I've got lots of freckles in my face, so I must be a steak. And then Josiah, on the other hand, he said, well, I, I sunburn easily. Um, I am skinny. I have blue-green eyes. I've got straight hair, and I've only got a few freckles, so I must be a pierce. And then a little bit later, there was, I can't remember who mentioned it, but they, they're like, Josiah, you forgot the most important thing, the pierce-toe handshake. And I was like, that's right. Now, if you guys don't know anything about this, uh, I did not know anything about this until I saw Julia, exp- and, I, and then I saw my kids do it. But it's this, I, so think about your toes. My toes are like sticks, but their toes bend and move in such a way that they're contorted, and they go like this. And I did take a picture, but I was told that some people freak out about feet on the screen, and so I'm not going to show it to you on the screen. But it's amazing. And uh, so if you want to see it, out in the lobby, though, they're going to have a little contortionist thing after the service. Uh, they might even be on FSU Circus later on. Um, but anyway, so obviously we, are, we, are, we, we do uh, demonstrate image physically, but of course being in the image of God is so much deeper and greater and more profound than that. Um, we bear his image not only physically, but also spiritually, relationally, morally, and mentally as well. And so if you didn't hear that sermon, make sure that you go back and listen to it. Pastor Paul did a great job. And, and uh, Wayne Grudem, he says this, he says, being made in the image of God means that we are to be like God and to represent God to the world. And so these next several weeks, we're, we're really exploring that idea of being like God and representing God to the world. And so we're going to talk about in our gender, in our relationships, in our sexuality, and then today in our work and our 
rest. And uh, this is a very important topic for us. In fact, um, I'm just going to let you in on a little, I didn't share this with first service. You guys are like, y'all are, y'all are in, y'all are in the know. Um, a couple weeks ago, Pastor Paul, he had originally scheduled for me to preach this sermon. And two weeks ago, he's like, Scott, man, I'm actually going to be in town next weekend. So you don't need to preach it. And I was like, she's like, yes, I don't have to preach on work and rest. And then he came back around and he's like, actually, I'm going to be out of town the following weekend and I want you to preach on work and rest. And I was like, no, because <laughs> this is a tough topic, right? Work is tough. It's tough to rest in the midst of work. Relationships take work. Raising a family takes work. Doing school is a lot of work. Not only that, but but our, our mind is just always going. And so you get up early, you go to the grind like a hamster wheel, and then you come home and you're still thinking, you're still processing, you're still scheming. It's hard to turn your mind off. It's a wonder anyone rests, right? Well, Tim Keller, in his book, he speaks into this uh, cultural reality that we face today in a great book called Every Good Endeavor. And so if you're interested in a theology of work, I would highly commend it to you. But he speaks of several cultural trends regarding work and rest that I thought were really helpful. So one thing is he says, more and more jobs are insecure. And so people often fret over their work. In addition to that, he said, people at the top are expected to put in enormous amounts of hours, while people at the bottom are having to take on multiple jobs in order to make ends meet. And then on top of that, he said, because of technology, we can work anywhere, which means what? We can work everywhere. And then the most important cultural trend he talks about, he says, we are the first, the first culture in the history of human society that says we define ourselves by what we do. So you, you have experienced this, right? Hey, what's your name? My name is Scott. What do you do? Not who are you. Not what's your family about? What do you do? And so on the one hand, in this industrial age, we don't have to choose what our parents did or what our grandparents did or what our great-grandma's parents did. We actually have many choices, which is awesome. But on the flip side, it communicates this idea of that we have to do in order to gain significance and value. And this can be on the flip side very crippling, right? What do I do? What is my purpose? And so Tim Keller, he says, there's never been more psychological, emotional, and physical pressure on work to be fulfilling than today. And so with that as our context, we are tempted to go in one of two directions. One is that we can find our identity and our significance only in our work. And so we just work and work and work and work. And if you my hero, Rocky, what does he say? He says, I want to go the distance so I'll, I'll know that I'm not a bum. He wanted to find his significance through what he did. And so unused vacation days is at a 40-year high. We can't turn off the work. On the flip side, sometimes we can be cynical. And then we can say, oh, well, all work is meaningless. And so either we just give up or we lose our motivation to work or we just work for the weekend. And a majority of Americans since 2005 haven't been satisfied with their work. And so we've got a problem. What does God have to say about that? Well, it requires us to go back to the beginning, back to the foundation, back to the Garden of Eden to find out what type of work and what type of rest will give us flourishing, will give us blessing, 
will give us what we so desire. So with that as an introduction, I want us to read. We're going to start back at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. If you guys will stand with me. Out of reverence for God's word, we, we want to listen to what he says to us. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the reading of God's word. May God use it to write its truths upon our soul this morning. You may be seated. And as you do, uh, today's sermon is entitled, The Goodness of Work and the Blessing of Rest. And so the big idea here is that we are to reflect God's image through our work and through our rest. And so we're actually going to look at three reasons why work is good, and then three reasons why rest is to be a blessing. And so we're going to begin with the goodness of work. So As you guys, as we've seen in chapter 1, as history dawns, God is at work. He speaks, he forms, he separates, he moves, he plants, he makes, he directs, and he blesses. God is at the center of all creation. Nothing happens except through his enabling power. We don't have a lazy God, but we have a God who steps in and initiates and then sustains and upholds the universe by the word of his power. We've got an amazing God, an amazing God that does amazing work. And so after each day, what does he do? He looks back, he stands back, and he looks at all of his work, all that he's done, and he says, it is good. And so before we get to the fall... Work is there, and work is good. And so what about us? How do we find the goodness and the purpose of our work? Well, I think it begins with what we studied last week, where we talked about how we're made in the image of God. And so reason number one why work is good is because through our work, we represent God. Verse 26, I want to go back and just read it again. It says, Then God said, God, Father, Son, and Spirit, speaking together, by the way, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion 
over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, livestock, and over all the earth and every, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Um, now, I want to focus particularly on the word dominion. Now, dominion, when you hear that word, you might think of like conquer in a bad way. And certainly after sin enters the world, there is a bad sort of ruling. But that doesn't diminish what God has entrusted to his people to do. He has entrusted to us to represent him as the king over all the earth, to rule, to exercise dominion. We've been entrusted as stewards with the responsibility to demonstrate God's character and his deeds throughout the world. As Ian Hart puts it, exercising royal dominion over the earth as God's representative is the basic purpose for which God created man. Man is appointed king over creation, responsible to God, the ultimate king, and as such, expected to manage and develop and care for creation, this task to include physical work. In other words, our mission in our work, and I, I want to use work a little bit more broadly here, not just as vocation, but really any good works that we do, is to bring God's kingdom on earth. I want you to think about that for a moment. You represent God when you work. You are ruling on behalf of God. You're entrusted with authority to represent him well. And so how would that impact the way that you work? How would that change the way that you go about doing your job? What values would you bring to it? What standards would you use? What products would you make? Which people would you serve in your work? I guess my question to you is, when you work, do people see the character and the image of God? Do they see you representing God well in your work? When David thinks about this in Psalm 8, he's just blown away. He's like, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? How you've made him a little lower than the angels and have given him authority and dominion and crowned him with glory and honor. He's just blown away like, God, me? What a gift. What goodness there is in work when we see that we get to represent the King of kings and the Lord of lords in our work. Now, we are not God, but we represent God. And that gives us goodness in our work. Reason number two, work is also good because through our work, we cultivate. After God creates man and woman, in verse 27, verse 28, then gives this command. It's often known as the cultural mandate. So verse 28, it says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the heavens, and, you know, very similar to verse 26. So in the wisdom of God, creation was good, but it was undeveloped. And so God has entrusted man with the responsibility of untapping this potential in creation. We get to do this through dominion taking and culture making. And so that's where we get the word what? Agriculture from. It's, it's forming the, the, the ground and creating life there, bringing life to bear, ordering it, giving it, giving it responsibility, 
It's where we get business and art and music. We're to take the raw materials and to make new, beautiful, wonderful things. God gives us grain and we make bread. God gives us grapes and we make wine. God gives us land and we make gardens and we build homes and roads and establish cities. God gives us music and we make instruments and we write lyrics and God gives us dance. And I got to see Hannah dancing yesterday on stage. And it's just beautiful, all the wonderful things that we get to see and experience. As image bearers, we are to multiply and fill the earth and bring life and culture to it. Dance, music, art, language, science, you name it. Whatever it is, there's unique purpose and dignity in creating and cultivating. It's amazing. Think about this. The uh, beginning of chapter 2, it says that uh, when God finished his work, it's the word for craftsman. And uh, think about the two jobs that God, God has. He takes on this idea of gardener in chapter 2. And then later on, Jesus is what? He's a carpenter. So I want to speak something directly here. There is, there is no sacred, secular sort of divide in our work. All work can be done to the honor and glory of God. Uh, when I came on as a pastor, I used to think in my head that somehow that was a more worthy vocation than someone else's, and that is just wrong. Vocation literally means a divine call to God's service. Whatever function or station in life to which one is called by God, you are acting in your vocation. And so Martin Luther, um, he, he was really trying to combat the sacred-secular sort of divide, and he says this. He says, the maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays. Not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. The Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes, because God is interested in good craftsmanship. And so as image bearers, we each have an opportunity to look at the chaos, look at the untapped potential, and bring order, bring beauty, bring creativity, bring life. So I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but we have some beekeepers. I'm not sure if they're here today. We have some guys that come in from Wisconsin, and they care. They do beekeeping. That's their job. They go out to Quincy, and they, they take care of bees, and they harvest the honey. I mean, like, amazing, right? I go to Lofty Pursuits, and, and you're watching the making of the candy, and it's just amazing how, how this guy does it. I was talking to uh, one of our elders at the Department of Transportation. He's in the legal council, and he says, you know what we get to do? Part of my job is to, is to think about law uh, in the future and what transportation can look like. So he said, part of my job is to think about how the laws will be changed once we have flying cars. I'm like, whoa, that's amazing. But the, the reality is, though, is that any work that we do is amazing. So if you are putting waffle fries in the fryer at Chick-fil-A, that's good work. Amen. That's right, Andrew. That's right. Or you do, do books for a company, or you, you build roads or fences, or you defend a client in court, or you care for a crying baby late at night, or you're teaching math, you're taking out the trash, or you're doing your homework, or you're obeying your parents, or you're driving Uber, or you're picking up groceries, you're cutting and styling hair, whatever it may be, all of that work has dignity and value. 
must be done with skill and excellence and faithfulness to the honor and glory of God. No work is beneath us. You can take out the dog for a walk, which that's a, that's a real point of contention for us in the home. And it can be done to the honor and glory of God. You can say, when you do that, what I am doing is good. And so, where is the chaos? Where is the untapped potential that's around you? I want to encourage you to work. Find dignity and value there. So I'm going to step into the chaos, and I'm going to pursue the blessing and the joy of finding fruitfulness and order in that endeavor. Small or big, every time you work, you are imaging God in your work. On the flip side here, what do you see as inconsequential or insignificant? Maybe it's a work that you do, or it's a work that you see someone else doing. It is important work. And you might even need to tell someone today, hey, thank you for what you do. I used to think of it as unimportant, but it is so important. The garbage man, that dude is awesome. And by the way, he makes pretty good money. Just want to let you know that. Um, Yes, all work that we do is meaningful and valuable. So that's reason number two. Reason number three, we also see the goodness of work when through our work we give. So God didn't create us because he lacked something. He created us so that he could give and share and bless with his creation. We see this in verse 28. Before God gives the command to work, it says he blesses them. I think that's actually pretty awesome too. God blesses us so we can work. There's grace, there's provision, there's power, there's love, and then we work. Great important reminder for us, and we'll talk about that more in rest in just a minute. In other words, God says, I am creating in order to bless you, in order to give to you. And he continues this on in verse 29, and he he says, I've given you every plant yielding fruit. I want you to enjoy all that I have made. And he delights in it. He loves to give. He loves to serve. That's who he is. And so if we want to find dignity and value in our work, our work is not to end in ourselves. It's to end in the service of others. So Martin Luther, again, in the 1600s, um, he spoke out strongly against the monks of his day because they separated themselves from the world. And yes, they read the Bible. Yes, they prayed. But Martin Luther said, to what extent are you actually doing good works? Because it's just for you. God doesn't need work. He doesn't need anything. Your neighbor needs good work. So serve your neighbor with your work. Martin Luther King Jr. follows alongside of that, and he says something similar. He says, every man must decide whether he will walk in the light of creative altruism or in the darkness of destructive selfishness. So what about you? Who is your work serving? Are you seeking to bless others or to give to others or... Are you only seeking to provide for yourself? And I know some of you might be here today and you're like, man, I just want to work. Pray that whenever God entrusts you that vocation and that particular work, that you will orient yourself to serving others rather than just yourself. 
For others of you, you might be working so much, and you're only working for getting a vacation. You're only working to build a better house. Instead, orient your work towards serving others. And here's the the amazing thing of all. We follow in the footsteps of the one who came to give the greatest work of all, and that's that's, the, that's what Jesus, that's when Jesus says, I came as the son of man not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And so the greatest work that is done by Jesus is to help us to understand that when we fail in our work, that Jesus's work is enough for us. So when we don't represent our God well through our work or we sometimes don't want to step into the chaos and we want to pursue laziness and not bring life or cultivate or sometimes we want it for ourselves rather than for God, God says, that's why I work for you. That's why I died for you. I, I, I work so that you can be rescued from those areas of idolatry of work or those areas where you just fall short. What's even more amazing is this, is that God not only invites us into the goodness of work, but unlike any other God, he tells his people to do what? Rest. Blessing of rest. Let's look there. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So God works, and now he rests. And uh, I'm not a Hebrew scholar here, but apparently verses 2 and 3, it's it's three Hebrew lines, each having seven words. And the middle word, that fourth word, is seven, or the seventh for day. And so the eye, and then by the way, seven is a sign of perfection or completion. So on the perfect day, God does what? He rests. Sabbath means to cease or to stop. And so God basically says, hey, I want you to stop your normal activity and rest. And then God, alongside of that, it says he, in verse 3, it says he blessed the seventh day and made it holy. So he sets it apart. He says this is a special sort of day. It's a holy day. It's a holy day separate for for something completely different than the other six days. And then on top of that, he says, and he blesses that seventh day. He embeds it with goodness. He embeds it with blessing. So this is, this is so paradoxical for us in our society that we are blessed when we rest. Let me give you three blessings that God offers to us when we rest from our work. So blessing number one, through our rest, we are refreshed. Um, Exodus 31 kind of expounds upon this idea of God resting. And it says this, it says, Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Now that word refreshed, I'm sure you're like, well, was God tired? 
Did he need a break? What was going on? That word for refreshed is, is not having to do with being tired. It has to do with enjoying, being satisfied, being delighted in. And it goes along with verse 31 where it says that God saw everything that he made and behold or look or say, wow. And then it says it was very good. So God stopped creating and he was refreshed. He stopped creating and he looked back and said, look at all that I have made. It's like a, it's like a, a painter when he finishes his masterpiece and he takes a step back and says, wow, what an amazing piece of art. Or if you have kids who like Legos, you finish your Lego set and you're like, wow, right? Or whatever it might be for you. God was so pleased that when he finished creation, free from sin, free from decay, free from death, free from any sort of corruption, when he took a step back and he saw the pristine blue skies and the brilliant sun and all of its splendor. He looks at the crystal clear waters and the shining sandy beaches and the magnificent colorful flowers and the stately trees all setting the stage for life and the animals and the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens. And then for Adam and Eve to be planted in the Garden of Eden and all of these things, he was able to step back and say, wow, he was refreshed. And in the same way, God wants us to experience that refreshment to rest from our labor and to enjoy him, to enjoy his creation and to enjoy the work that we have made. But of course for us, refreshment is not just a sort of taking a step back. It's also for the purpose of physical refreshment. You see, we need to rest physically. We're always going at hyperneck speed, right? All the time. We got to get kids over here. We got to we got to do our job over there. We've got to always be checking our email. We've always got to be going and going and going and going and going and going and going. And we don't ever stop to rest. God says, your body is going to wear out. I don't know if you knew this, but there's, a, there's studies that have been done now um, uh, by, by unbelievers who are finding this to be the case, uh, that, that everyone needs rest. And so there's kind of this pursuit now of going back to the Sabbath. Um, and one of the studies found that people, when they work between 55 and 70 hours, they start to lose momentum and eventually their body starts to break down. Now you might be like, that's not me. I prove, I'm an exception to that rule. God says, no, you are disobeying me. Rest. Take a break. Put down the phone. Put down the project. Be refreshed. So that's one, one purpose. One blessing. A blessing of, refresh is refresh, or blessing of rest is refreshment. But number two, through our rest, we also reorient our hearts to God. It's easy for our hearts to get disconnected and discombobulated and all sorts of chaos is going all around us and we so easily forget that we are not God. We have to do everything on our own. We have to just keep going and keep striving and keep earning. But a day of rest reminds us that we are not God. And some of you might say, well, well I take a vacation. But on that vacation, you're still working. And even on that vacation, it's not getting to the deeper rest. 
that God wants for you. He doesn't want you to just like work, 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 and then take a vacation. He wants you to rest in him. It is a releasing and an entrusting. It is a saying, God, I'm not you. And I want to reorient my heart to you as the God who created and sustained the world. And not only that, as my redeemer and my savior, and I don't have to work to gain your approval. In Deuteronomy 5, it's a restatement of the Ten Commandments. So Exodus 20, it talks about how we're to keep the Sabbath for the purpose of remembering God's creation and being refreshed in that way. But Deuteronomy 5 takes it a different way. It says, after sin comes into the world. And chapter 5, verse 15 says this, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And I think we can insert ourselves into that and say, we were a slave to our sin. And the Lord your God brought you out from there. He brought us out of our sin with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So when we keep the Sabbath day, we reorient our hearts to God and we say, I don't gain salvation through my works. I gain salvation through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for me. Rescue me from my enslavement to work rescue me from my idolatry, rescue me from my busyness, and help me to put it down. God says you will be blessed by doing nothing, and that is the gospel. When God looks at us, he sees the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and he says, that work is good, and that work has been commended to you. No more trying, no more doing, just being and receiving. The only set of eyes in the world that you need to be concerned about is the eyes of God that looks upon you through the finished work of Jesus Christ and says, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. Chariots of Fire is a great movie. I'm sure you guys have probably seen it. If you haven't, highly commend it to you, except for the there's one particular scene that I was very surprised by. PG used to be different back in the olden days, and so I'm not going to say any more. But um, uh, there's two men in this, in this film in particular, Harold Abrams and Eric Little. Harold Abrams, they're both athletes, of course. They're both sprinters, and they're running towards the Olympics, but for two very different purposes. Harold Abrams, he says, I have 10 seconds to prove my existence. That's my identity my sense of achievement. It's my work. That's where I found value. And it was still not enough. Eric Little, on the other hand, of course, the race falls on Sunday, and he says, I will not work. I will rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ for me. He says, I'm secure so much in my relationship with Christ that I don't need the gold medal. I've got Jesus, and that's enough. So God invites us every Sunday, prioritize the Lord's Day. God invites us every Sunday to reorient our hearts towards God and to do it with his people. To remember that he is our God and we are his people and all we need to do is rest. Michael Horton, he says, the hardest thing in the world for us as believers in Christ is to sit down and just receive. And so if this is you, if you are struggling with this idea of rest, 
Let me just commend you a couple of quick things. Number one is bring your heart to God. Say, God, I want to rest in you. And take that first step. You might be like, there's no way I can take 24 hours off. There's no way. Just start by bringing your heart, your, your wounded, your broken, your tired heart to God and say, God, help me to rest in you. And then second, begin to think about what it looks like to have physical and mental and spiritual refreshment. Um, there's a Jewish rabbi named uh, Abraham Herschel. And he says, if you, uh, if you rest with, or excuse me, if you work with your hands, rest your hands. If you work with your mind, then rest or Sabbath with your mind. And so think about um, what rest would look like for you. Maybe for you it's yard work that actually is refreshing for you. Maybe it's a long walk. Maybe it's no school, no homework. Maybe it's taking a nap. If you are an introvert, maybe it's staying away from people. If you're an extrovert, maybe it's hanging out with more people, taking a break from technology, taking a break from email, not doing big decisions on your day of rest. For most people, that day of rest is on Sunday. For some of people like myself, it's not on Sunday. I tell you, it was so hard for me to put my sermon down on Friday and not focus on it for a full day from Friday night to Saturday night because this is so hard for me. But God says, when you rest, you will be blessed and refreshed and make sure that you orient that resting towards God. So feed your soul. Don't just take Sundays off and go somewhere else, but spend time with God's people in God's word, spending time just meditating on the glory of God and what he has done for you. But as you know, this requires trust. This requires us to give it up. It's so hard for us. And so I just want to encourage you with um, one last thing. Our, our final blessing of rest is that through our rest, we were reminded of our final rest to come. Uh, the writer of Hebrews, he writes of this idea of rest, and he writes to a people who are weary. They were striving. They were, they were, they were trying to endure. They were, they were going through so much persecution, and in fact, many of the Hebrews were going back to Judaism, because at least there they weren't being persecuted. And the writer of Hebrews, he takes them through this history of the Israelites, and he says, hey, I know it's hard, but God promises rest for you. God promises that every time you act in faith towards him, when you take a Sabbath day and make it holy, when, you, when, when people entered into the promised land, when, when, there's, when there's freedom from enemies, all of those little bits of rest were not the final rest. But let me encourage you to look towards the final rest to come. And so he says this in Hebrews 4. He says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest is also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. It's very interesting, isn't it? He says, Strive to enter the rest. It takes work to rest. It takes planning to rest. And God says it's worth the effort to continue to trust in Jesus, to rest in him. And the encouragement is that one day our resting will be complete. No more striving, no more doing. Rest for our weary soul. 
A.R. Fawcett says this. He says, The day of rest is indeed an emblem of eternal rest. During our lifespan on earth, we celebrate the Sabbath and realize only partially what Sabbath rest entails. In the life to come, we shall fully experience God's rest, for then we will have entered a rest that is eternal. How good does that sound? You know, all of the work of God culminates in rest. His work of creation, what did it do? It culminated in rest on the seventh day. God's work of redemption culminates in rest when Jesus sat down. And then God's work of recreation culminates in rest. A rest when we see God face to face and a wipe away every tear from our eye. Death will be no more, neither will be the crying or pain any longer. Only joy, only peace, only comfort, only seeing Jesus face to face and entering into the joy and rest of our master. So we want to rest today in anticipation of that final rest. That's the gospel. The gospel is that we rest in Christ and then out of that rest, we work and we serve him, not to prove ourselves, but to simply join with him in seeing God's kingdom come on earth the way that it is in heaven. And so Jesus invites us today, first and foremost, to say, I'm coming to you. I'm weary. I'm heavy laden. And I want you to give me rest for my soul. Let's pray that God would do that today.